Uh, can I get you to turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 11? Exodus chapter 11. That's on page, uh, if you've got the green dot Bibles, it's on page 53. And if you've got the yellow dot Bibles, it's on page 64. Exodus chapter 11. Uh, and on your way in also, you have a bulletin in your, in your Bible. Uh, then if you get thick up there, in the middle page uh, of one of those two sheets, there's an outline of where we're going. And so it would be helpful to have that in front of you as well. Um, but most importantly, Exodus, uh, we're doing chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13. Well, let me start by asking you if you've ever been in a situation where you needed to be rescued. Now, just today, the Japanese government was trying to work out how to rescue thousands of climbers who were trapped on the nation's second highest volcano when it suddenly erupted. Last Thursday, almost 300 refugees from Syria were picked up by a cruise liner from a boat that was in trouble and danger of sinking, and they needed rescue. And three and a half thousand years ago, God rescued his people of Israel from the tyranny of the Egyptians. Today, not only do we see how he did that, but also how it points to a much bigger rescue. Rescue that involves each one of us who are here today. Well, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, God's people, Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. But in fulfillment of the promises God made to their forefathers, God was going to rescue them. And he appointed Moses as his prophet to lead them, and Aaron as Moses' spokesman. And they told Pharaoh the word of God. The word that said, let my people go. But Pharaoh refused. You could say he hardened his heart, or you could say God hardened his heart. And both those things would be true. And so last week we saw God sending plague after plague after plague on Egypt, nine plagues in all, but Pharaoh remained stubborn. And after the ninth plague, at the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh said to Moses, get out from me and never come back. Seems like the end of negotiations. Moses has lost his audience with Pharaoh. You'll never relent, finish that. Where are you going to go from here? But there and then, God speaks to Moses. And he gives him a word of promise for his people and a word of warning for the Egyptians. In chapter 11, verse 1, God promises Moses there will be just one more plague, one more plague, and that's it. Pharaoh will not only let you go, he will drive you away completely, it says. He'll say, go, I don't want you in the land anymore. Get out. But there's more. God says to Moses, you go and tell the people, when it comes time to go, you go and ask your Egyptian neighbors for the gold and silver items they've got, the jewelry and what have you, to take with you when you leave. And they will give it to you. Now, can you imagine if you are made in someone's house and you are going to run away? You said to your employer, ma'am, I'm leaving. Can I please take the silver and gold jewelry? Incredible, isn't it? And there's a promise to Israel. But with the promise to Israel, there's also a warning to Egypt. And Moses passes on the warning to Pharaoh. He says in verse 4, 
Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. God is going to bring a terrible, terrible, terrible judgment on Egypt. But it's not going to affect his people. Moses continues in verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The Lord knows those who are his. And he continues. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. God will vindicate his messages. And so you see here, judgment on Egypt, salvation for Israel. God rescues his people and brings judgment on his enemies. And friends, judgment and salvation always go together in the Bible. You go right from the beginning, oh, you trace it through, you see it. Judgment and salvation, always together. They're two sides of the same coin. God judges his enemies and rescues his people. And friends, that's not only in the past, that's, that's for the future as well. And we need to take warning as well. The time will come when God will bring terrible judgment on this world. It's a universal judgment. A judgment that is so big that it will make the judgment against Egypt like very small in comparison. And yet when God judges the world, He will rescue His people. He will make a distinction between those who are His and those who are not. Just like He's going to do in the Exodus. And the way He will do it then is foreshadowed in the way He's going to do it here. So pay careful attention if you want to avoid the wrong to come. So Moses delivers his message to Pharaoh. And then at the end of verse 8 of chapter 11, Moses walks out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Good arm already. Huh? He's angry because, because Pharaoh's been so stubborn. Plague after plague after plague. Talk to him now, Pharaoh. Kick him out. He's like, what? He's angry. But you know what? Actually, God is behind all this, isn't he? Actually, God's got his reasons. God said to him, in verse 9, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. See that? And so at the end of verse 10, it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not have the people of Israel out of the land. Yes, on the one hand, Pharaoh was being wicked, stubborn. And on the other hand, God had a good purpose behind it all. And he was going to accomplish it. The beginning of this meeting, 
Kenneth asked, what kind of week we had? I don't know what kind of week you had, but I'm sure for some of us here, it was a hard one. Sometimes we get really upset with people for doing the wrong thing, maybe rightly so. You know, the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart doesn't mean that Pharaoh didn't harden his own heart as well. Responsible for his actions. But you know what? Even in that, all those things, God was in control. He was working out the good for the glory of his name, for the good of his being. And whatever's happened to you this week, know this. God works for the good of those who love him. Who are called according to his purpose. The good he works in you is that he will make you more like Christ. The good he works in the world is ultimately to bring everything under Christ. God is in work. Go back to the Exodus now. In chapter 12, the Lord, Yahweh, takes the next step to fulfill his plans. And he speaks to Moses and Aaron. And he says in verse 2, this month is going to be for you the beginning of months. In other words, this is going to start the new year, right? From now on, new year, forget everything. New year starts now, right? This month, first month of the year for you. Come from now. And you tell the congregation of Israel that the gathering, the assembly of my people, from now on, verse 3, on the 10th day of the month, Every man is to take a lamb for his household. One lamb per household. If your household is too small, verse 4, you can share. This lamb has to be without blemish. Right? Because it's going to be sacrificed. Can you sacrifice to God something that's flawed? The lamb is meant to be about one year old. That is, it's fully grown, but it's not aging. And unlike in English, when the Hebrew said lamb, it can be either a sheep or a goat. And God doesn't mind which one. The chosen lamb has to be kept until the 14th day of the month. You choose on the 10th, you keep it to the 14th. And on the 14th day of the month, when the sun sets, God says in verse 6, you are to kill all your lambs. There will be massive, simultaneous death across the entire Israelite community affecting every household and then God tells Moses and Aaron in, in, in verse 7 that each Israelite household should take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel and lintel is like the upper doorpost like that, that part here, doorpost, doorpost and lintel is like that alright put it there of the houses where they eat now at this stage we don't know why and then they were to eat the flesh of the lamb that, that, that very night, roasted on a fire, a barbecue, huh? And they were to eat it with unleavened bread. Bread made without yeast. Also don't know why yet, but we'll see later. And they were to eat it with bitter herbs. Maybe it's to symbolize the bitterness of, of life in Egypt. And they weren't to keep any leftovers. They were to burn what they couldn't eat. Then he says in verse 11, eat it this way, with your belt fastened, with sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. When he says your staff in your hand, talking about the donka, not all the people who work for you, okay? So staff in your hand. In other words, you're ready to go. And you will go suddenly. So he says, eat it quickly, in haste. That's always easy for me. I always eat fast. <laughs> So this meal 
this sacrifice, this whole event, has a name. What is it called? Verse 11. It is the Lord's Passover. It is Yahweh's Passover. Now, why Passover? Verse 12 and 13, God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on, on all the, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood, the blood that's on the doorpost, the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See what's going to happen? God's going to bring His judgment. There will be massive simultaneous death across the Egyptian community, affecting every household. And now we will see how God will distinguish His people from His enemies. When God comes to judge and He sees the blood of the Lamb, He says, I will pass over you. You will not come under my judgment when I bring the judgment upon the Egyptians. Because among God's people, the death has already happened. The Lamb has been slain. They shelter under His blood. And God knows who is His and who is theirs. And brothers and sisters, that is how God distinguishes His people from His enemies on that day of judgment as well. God's people are the ones who shelter under the blood of His Lamb. And who is His Lamb? Well, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb without blemish, the one who never sinned. New Testament says that Christ is the Passover Lamb who has been sacrificed for us. He has been slaughtered. His blood has been shed on the cross. And when He died on the cross, He took the judgment that we deserved on, on Himself. Our death has already happened in Him. His blood covers us. And so on the day of judgment, when God comes to bring His judgment upon the whole world, He will We will be safe if we shelter under the blood of Jesus. And we do so by trusting in Him. And then God goes on to speak to Moses about the future. Not just the immediate future, I think it's going to happen like the next few days. But he talks also about what should happen in the years to come. Some of the things he's going to tell him is like for now. Some of the things he's going to tell him is what happened every year. Because he's going to do some of these things every year, again and again, as a, as a permanent reminder of what's happening here in the Exodus. Because you see, what's happening in the Exodus is so important that Israel needs to be brought back to it again and again and again every year lest they forget this defining moment in their history. Can't forget this one. You mustn't forget. You must never forget this one. This, this is what defines you. This is your identity. This is who God is to you. The God will rescue you. Can't forget. 
And so God says in verse 14, you keep this day, this 14th day of the month, as a memorial day. And for the next seven days after that, you only eat unleavened bread. That is, bread made without yeast. Now at this point, no reason is given. Right? They're just told, that's what you do. And in the future, when you have this festival, you've got to get rid of all leaven from your house. Now what does this mean? Well, you see, back in those days, what people would normally do, right? they don't go and buy gardenia or whatever it is, right? what they do is they, they, they bake bread themselves, right? and they take a bit of the old fermented dough, and they mix it with a new dough. Uh, so the yeast will mix uh, and then grow and start a new batch of fermented milk. So they keep on passing, keep, so keep it going. Right? And now, but now each year, when Passover comes, they have to get rid of all the leaven, all the old dough on their house. Start all over again. And so on the first day, 14th day of the month, God says, hold an assembly. Right? Do church. At the end of the week, 21st day, do church again. And between those seven days, there's no leaven in your house. And if anyone eats what is leavened, he is to be cut off from his people, expelled from the people of God. When we come to the New Testament, the fact that we have been rescued by Christ and that Christ is our Passover lamb also means that we've got to clean things up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Corinthian church was boasting about their toleration of gross sexual immorality in their midst. People were behaving really badly. And they thought it was a good thing. And the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, says to them in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 and 7, you have it on the screen, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I don't want to bring all those bad things from the world inside, isn't it? I was just get rid of sexual immorality. That's it's the old life of God's people now. Those who insist on persisting in it cannot remain part of God's people. It must be cut off. <coughs> well, back to Exodus. And after receiving instructions from the Lord, Moses calls the elders of Israel together. In verse 21 to 23 of chapter 12, he tells them, all the things that God told him about the Passover. Tells them not what to do. Then you come down to verse 24. He tells them to keep doing it. Repeat it. In verse 25, you even keep doing it when you come to the land that God will give you in the future. For what they're meant to do is to teach their children about this and of course their children to be teaching their children about this and their children to be teaching their children about this and so in verse 26 he says when your children say to you what do you mean by this service you shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt 
when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Notice here how God is so keen that his Old Testament people should teach their children about how he rescued them. Part of the whole reason for this Passover beginning of filling in again is so that God can communicate this, this message to Israel in each generation in a tangible way. Now, of course, just eating the Passover meal itself wasn't really tricky. Right? They might have thought, oh, we eat unleavened bread and lamb and bitter herbs at Passover time. It's like some people eat turkey at Christmas or Yisan in Chinese New Year or your mother's famous chicken curry on your birthday or whatever it is. Right? Action is important. It's instituted by God. He wants them to do it. But he wants them to do it so they'll ask the question. But you've got to get to the meaning the right meaning behind what it is, behind the action. What are we doing? Why are we doing this? Ah, and then the word of salvation comes. This is the sacrifice the Lord passed over because he passed over the houses of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our houses. The sign, the action, must be accompanied by the word. To make it meaningful. And friends, for us, we also need to keep on telling our children the story of God's rescue of us in Jesus. They keep needing to hear the big rescue that God has achieved for us in the cross. That is of vital importance. Some of you have children, some of you don't. But let me say, when you think about children, the most important thing you give to your next generation is not an education, it's not an inheritance, it's not a comfortable life, all those things are good. The most important thing to give to your next generation is the gospel is The most important thing. And we don't need to we need to not only to give them the gospel, but we need to help them to see how important it is that they pass it on to their children as well. So if you're the parent of a young child, you are primarily responsible for imparting the gospel to this child. That's your job. That's your big job. A kids' church can help, confirmation class can help, yeah, yeah, but you're the main person. You've got to know the gospel, you need to apply the gospel in your own life, in the lives of your children, and if you need help, well, very good, because Tuesday night training is on, parenting course, come week to only this week. Alright? Get the gospel across to your kids. And if you don't have kids, well, it's really good. You know why? Because we have kids. As a community, we have kids. <laughs> let me tell you. We need to let our next generation know the gospel. And we need to keep on teaching them and part and just making sure it gets down to them. At the moment, we are really struggling in kids' church. We've got so many kids, praise God. So many opportunities for the gospel. So few teachers. This is a very, very good ministry opportunity. Go and talk to Rabina afterwards. <laughs> we need to make sure that our next generation knows and appreciates what God has done for us in Jesus. Furthermore, among God's New Testament people, generations are not just one generation, 
the younger ones, the young younger the kids. It's, well, we have generations crossways, isn't it? Sideways, isn't it? That is, one person tells the gospel to another, one person tells the gospel to another, and people come in and become Christian. And so again, as people come in the church, and as people become Christians, we need to make sure that they're clear about the gospel. We need to make sure they're taught that this is a central thing, this is an important thing. Not just like one thing, there's so many other things, okay, gospel here, this one, this one, this one, all right. No, 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 this is it. They need to know that. And we need to keep on reminding ourselves and each other again and again what Jesus has done for us. How he died for us, how he was vindicated in his resurrection. We keep being excited about it. We keep singing about it and speaking about it, reminding each other about it, and holding it as the most important thing in our identity as God's people. Faithfully passing it on to the next generation of God's people who will be right here. Now there's another way that God has given us to do this. I haven't mentioned it yet, we'll talk about it later. But now we go on to uh, the end of chapter 27, uh, no, verse 27, because remember how Pharaoh hardened his heart to God's word. We talked about that earlier. Let's see how the people of Israel responded to God's word when Moses brought it to them. Moses brings them God's word. At the end of verse 27, what do they do? They bow their heads and worship. They bow their heads and worship. They hear God's word. They recognize it for what it is. And they bow their heads and so that they submit to God's word, isn't it? They recognize it. They bow before it. And that's expressed in obedience. And so in verse 28, the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And friends, this is the right response to the hearing of God's word. God's people, Israel, many times didn't do the right response, but this one it is. We believe him, we bow before him, we obey. And God is faithful to his word. God does what is promised. Alright, so in the next section we look at God's promises fulfilled. At midnight, in verse 29, God strikes down every single firstborn in Egypt, irrespective of rank, even the livestock are included. Just as he promised. Imagine the grief across the nation, waking up in the middle of the night to find every firstborn son dead. Just as God said. And so in verse 30, everyone is up in the middle of the night in great distress. And it says a great cry is heard in Egypt, echoing the cry of God's people while they were enslaved. And Pharaoh himself calls for Moses and Aaron. And he says to them in verse 31, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be God. And bless me also. <laughs> he knows he cannot fight on with this God. Try some And the Egyptian people in verse 33, they are urgent to get the Israelites out. Because they say, Warriors are going to die if they stay here. And so the Israelites, they get up, they go straight away, they, they leave their dough before it's leavened, and we'll come back to it in a minute. They do what Moses told them. They ask the Egyptians for gold and silver, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Egyptians say, take, 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 take. As long as you go, just take. And so they plunder the Egyptians, as God had promised. 
huge numbers leave Egypt that night. They're pouring out onto the streets. 600,000 men, plus women, plus children, plus a whole number of people who are not Israelites, but they go with them anyway. Verse 38 calls them a mixed multitude. And then there's all the livestock and the cattle. It's a big, a big exodus, isn't it? Up they go. More than the traffic jam and are going up. And they also take, well, they take their cakes, cakes of unleavened dough that they've made in verse 39. Because they need to eat on the way, but they don't have time to have the food prepared. And so they quickly make cakes of that because they don't have time to make it with leaven. Ah, and now we understand why God said in the future to have those feed them unleavened bread. He wanted them to remember them, that this is, what, this is what happened to them. The haste which they left each year. And so after 430 years of being in Egypt, the people of Israel, armies of God, get up and they walk out. Just as God had promised Abraham many years before. You see friends, God is faithful to his promise to save and he is faithful to his promise to judge. Egypt was judged as God promised. Israel was rescued as God promised. Jesus was judged on the cross for our sins as God promised. He was rescued in the resurrection as God promised. And God will one day judge the world as He's promised and will save His people as He promised. There's no doubt about that. God watched over Israel that night to bring them out. And so he wanted these people to keep this night as for generations to come as a night of watching. A night where they'll look back and remember what he done. And as far as Moses brings them out, God gives him a few more instructions for the future Passovers in, in verse 43 to 49. He tells them who can participate in the meal and essentially it's those who are circumcised because circumcision was the mark of being one of God's people. And it's God's people who will be rescued. Of course, in the New Testament, the mark of being one of God's people is having God's Spirit, isn't it? That's the seal, the Holy Spirit, the circumcision of the heart. So, it's God's people who are saved in the death of Jesus. It's God's people who participate in Him. It's God's people who will be rescued on the Day of Judgment. And then in this section of the Passover, God also tells the Israelites one extra thing about the Passover lamb that He not mentioned before. I wonder if you can see it. It's there in verse 46, at the end of the verse. Notice what he says about it. He says, You shall not break any of its bones. No explanation here. Sounds a bit random, really, doesn't it? Are you going to cook the lamb and, you know, barbecue it and all that? Eat the thing, but you can't go break any bones. But in John 19, when Jesus was crucified, the soldiers broke the legs of the two criminals on his right and on his left. So they died quickly before the Sabbath house. But when they came to Jesus, they, they didn't do that because he was already dead. And John says this happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled that not one of his bones would be broken. Once again, see, God is setting up this part of the land. All possible to point forward to Jesus. 
those who are given the Spirit who have faith in the ones who, who partake in Jesus. There's also one other matter that God tells Moses about here that arises from what happened this night. In verse 13, Yahweh says to, to, to Moses, he says, oh, sorry, chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1, he says, or in verse 2, he says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Consecrate, set apart. Right? Belongs to me in a special way. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whoever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Okay? Why is he saying this? Well, he will start something and then but first he goes on in verse 3 to uh, Moses talks to the people about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, telling them the things that we've already heard that God speak to him. Uh, and then, in verse 11 to 16, he talks back about the firstborn. And essentially what he says is this. Every firstborn belongs to God in a special way. With the animals, firstborn males must be sacrificed. Otherwise, they have to be redeemed or bought back by the sacrifice of a substitute. So if you have a donkey that's born and you don't kill the donkey, you can kill a lamb instead. Right? That's the substitute. And this applies to your firstborn son. God says you have to redeem him as well. Again, that's a very important teaching thing for the children. Because when your children ask you the meaning of this, this is what you say in verse 14. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all my firstborn sons I redeemed. See? Big start reminder in the life of every Israelite. It's a big, it's, it's like having a mark on your hands or a frowning between your eyes, right? You, you can't miss this. Because if you're an Israelite, every time there's a firstborn, there's going to be a sacrifice. A sacrifice that looks back to the slaughter of the firstborn of Egypt. And a sacrifice, mind you, that looks forward to the coming of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was born? He, he's, he's born under the law, isn't he? Right, and this law applies to him as well. He's the firstborn, uh, legally, not or biologically, of Joseph. Uh, on the eighth day, Joseph and Mary took him to the temple. Uh, and the appropriate sacrifice are offered in, 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 uh, in accordance with this. But in the biggest scheme of things, in the realities to which these signs are pointing, he is God the Father's firstborn, coming into the world. He belonged to the Father in an even more special way than anyone could imagine. But He, the ultimate firstborn, was not redeemed. He was sacrificed to redeem us. Like every firstborn of Egypt, God's own firstborn died under His judgment. And great was the cry that rang out that day, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And the sacrifice of every firstborn in Israel's history from the day, this day here onwards, pointed to that ultimate sacrifice through which we are now saved.
1,500 years later, on the night before that sacrifice, Jesus shared this same Passover meal with his disciples. Technically, actually, it's a day of the sacrifice because the Jews counted from sundown to sundown. But instead of following the prescribed Passover ceremony, he, he changed it. Instead of looking back to the Exodus, he would look forward instead to that Exodus that he was about to accomplish that day. To the real Exodus. That, that, that even this whole book of Exodus and this whole story of the Exodus and this whole Exodus out of Egypt and God's rescue of them was actually pointing forward to something even bigger. And Jesus was going to accomplish that big thing. He took the bread and when he gave it thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave them and said, this, this cup is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That is our instruction for future remembrance. No longer are we remembering the exodus out of Egypt. No longer is the exodus the big defining point for the people of God. No, 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 no. It's something far, far bigger. The real exodus. And now, but all that we're doing to remember Jesus and his death. In a few minutes, we're going to share together the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a meal like the Passover. The way we do it, it's a small meal, but it's still a meal. And like a Passover, it's a family meal. It's for those who are in God's family. Like the Passover, it's a remembrance meal. It's a meal that celebrates our redemption. It's a meal that looks back to what God did for us in that great act of redemption on the cross. As a meal in which we proclaim the death of Jesus until He comes again. It's a meal that we eat and drink to remind each other that God has saved us. Now, like the Passover, if we just eat and drink without understanding the significance of it, it doesn't really do us any good at all. Too many people think they're saved by, or, or get some great spiritual benefit by just eating and drinking the bread and wine by itself. No, that doesn't do anything. But as we eat and drink, we have to ask, as the children are asked, and indeed every believer comes in has to ask, what's the significance of this? Why are we doing it? Then comes the Word of God, the message of the Gospel. Jesus, our Rescuer, died in our place so that we can escape the judgment of God that is going to come on this world. The action, that's important, but the action itself, you don't know what it means until you hear the Word. And when we hear that Word, and we trust in Jesus, and we rely on His death, and we shelter under His blood, and we are one of His people. We are rescued. And God will pass over us when He comes that last day in judgment. So finally, my friend, 
If you're someone here who's not yet part of the people of God, then please listen to both God's promise and His warning. Because God is faithful to His promise to rescue and He's faithful to His warning, His promise to judge. The day will surely come when every human being will be brought to account. And then God's wrath will be poured out. Oh, it's stubborn like Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Look where it got that. Listen to God's word. Bow in worship before Him. Do what He says by putting your trust in the death of Jesus to rescue you from God's wrath. And God's promise is that if you do, you will experience rescue.